Let's pray. Grant to us, Lord, is to hear your word, eyes to see your truth, and a heart to do your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Paul's letter to Philemon is a little bit unique in the New Testament, not only because it's so short, but also because it's a personal letter written to a friend and a convert. That's not to say that the letter was meant to be altogether private and confidential. After all, it is also addressed to Aphia, perhaps Philemon's wife, and Archippus, whom he calls a fellow soldier. Perhaps Archippus is the son of Philemon and Aphia, who knows. And it's also addressed to the church that meets in Philemon's home. So despite it being so personal and clearly addressing Philemon, this is a letter that's meant to be read and received by the whole church. And thus here we are reading it today. Philemon was a Christian living at Coloss, and he had a slave whose name was Onesimus. And it would seem that Onesimus, whose name means useful, did not live up to his name. Indeed, not only did he run away, perhaps he also stole something from Philemon. That the details are not clear. What is clear is that Onesimus has ended up with Paul, who's a prisoner in Rome. And if Onesimus wasn't a Christian in Coloss, he is now. And he's become of great value to Paul. In verse 10, Paul refers to him as my son. And in verse 12, he says that Onesimus is his very heart. If Onesimus was once useless to Philemon, as Paul says in verse 11, he's now useful to both of them. Nonetheless, Paul's sending him back. Hopefully to be received, not as a slave, but as Paul says in verse 16, as brother. Dear to Paul, but even dearer to Philemon. Now, of course, Paul is confident to do that because he knows that Philemon is not going to mistreat Anisimus or be harsh with him. As crimes went in the ancient law, there wasn't much that was more serious than slaves running away from their masters. The fear of slaves rising up in rebellion was so great that often extreme and savage vengeance was meted out on runaways, even death. But Philemon's not going to do that. As Paul knows, Philemon's the real deal. You see, he loves the saints in Coloss, and he invites them into his home for prayer and fellowship and worship. He trusts the Lord Jesus unreservedly, and he's partnered with Paul in the Gospel for the sake of Christ. Philemon is a friend who's encouraged Paul and given him great joy. And he's a brother who refreshes the hearts of all of God's people. Now before I say any more about Onesimus and Philemon, I want to say a few things about what might seem like the elephant in the room, and that's slavery. Clearly the right or wrong of slavery is something that Paul does not address in this letter. Indeed, it's hard to find anywhere in the New Testament where slavery is described as anything more than it is what it is. One of the problems we have with slavery is that the model we have for it in our minds is that of African slaves in chains, being transported to the cotton fields of America and treated as commodities of property and labour. And though Roman law did understand slaves as property, they were often regarded 
more as indentured labour rather than subhuman species to be exploited. Nonetheless, as Christians, we recognise that every person made in God's image should be treated with all the dignity and value that God has afforded to each individual. So we rightly recoil when slavery is presented as anything less than an unmitigated evil. And all the more so when we recognise that Christians in the recent past have enlisted the Bible in general, and Paul in particular, as an ally in justifying the practice of slavery. The argument has been, well, if Paul hasn't sought to overthrow the accepted and economic social order of his day, then why would we? That, however, is to ignore the overwhelmingly clear teaching of Scripture about human dignity and instead to make an argument from silence. It's not only a logical fallacy, it's a willful misrepresentation of the truth. Nonetheless, we do not find an apostolic renunciation against this radical evil, and that's disappointing. What we do find, however, is a focus on transforming personal relationships within the system. When Paul addressed the issue of slavery directly in 1 Corinthians 7, he indicated that manumission or, or the release from slavery should be taken when possible, but that the greatest slavery was being a slave to sin. For true freedom only comes when we are bought by Christ at great cost, so that we might belong to God. Only then are we truly free. Now that's not a reason to simply accept slavery as a necessary evil, but it is a reason to recognise that the most effective response to any sin is not a change of the law, but to change hearts. If Anisimus is going to steal no more, if he's going to return to Philemon to make reparations and fulfil his obligations, then that's not going to happen because the law is against him. The reason that he's going to be willing to go back is because he's had a change of heart. He recognises that true freedom is found not in the absence of chains, not in having no responsibilities, not in being accountable to no one, but in knowing that his identity, his worth and his eternal destiny is bound up entirely in knowing God the Father through Christ the Son. His intentions, his actions and his decisions have changed because his heart has changed. And as for Philemon, Paul's confident that what Philemon does is not a response to the law, and neither is it a response to Paul's apostolic authority. Instead, Philemon's response is according to love. Have a look from verse 8. Paul says, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Now Paul is not simply saying that, seeing as we're such good mates, can you do me a favour and release Onesimus? Paul recognises that Philemon does love him, but it's a love, Paul says in verse 4, that Philemon has for all the saints because of his faith in the Lord Jesus and his partnership in the Gospel. 
If Paul chose to force the issue, it would undermine a proper understanding of love and therefore the gospel. As Paul says in verse 14, I don't want to do anything without your consent so that any failure you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. And that's the thing about the gospel. It changes our behaviour by changing our heart. Instead of demanding begrudging obedience, it elicits gracious consent. We love because God first loved us. It's Christ's love that compels us because we're convinced that Christ died for us and therefore we should live no longer for ourselves but for him who died for us and was raised again. And that's what's driving Philemon. It's why he loves the saints. It's why he partners in the gospel. It's why he's such an encouragement to Paul. And it will be why he's able to welcome Anissimus back, not just as a slave, but better than that. And what could be better than having an obedient slave? Well, in verse 16, Paul says that there's two things better than that. The first is to have Anissimus back as a fellow man. Can you see what Paul's saying? He's not saying to Philemon, Philemon, he's not saying to Philemon, you, you can't keep Anissimus as a slave anymore, now that Anissimus is a Christian. He's not saying that. As if it was okay to keep non-Christian slaves, but not Christian ones. Paul's not saying that at all. Indeed, Paul gives Philemon the option of keeping Anissimus as a slave, but he doesn't think he'll do that because Anissimus is a fellow man. That is, he's another human being created in God's image and having equal dignity and value. But no longer can Philemon consider any other fellow man as property to be owned and used. But more than that, Paul says in verse 16 that Anissimus is not just a fellow man, he's a brother in the Lord. And as a brother, he's to be retreated as family, as one who shares the one faith, one baptism, and one Lord Jesus. Paul expects Philemon to welcome Anissimus just as he would welcome Paul himself. Now Paul's like a father to Philemon because very likely he's one of Paul's converts in Coloss. But Paul calls Philemon a brother and a partner in the gospel. And now, that's what Anissimus is also. He's a brother to Philemon, he's a brother to Paul, and indeed to all the saints. So whether Philemon treats Anissimus as a fellow man, a brother, or both, the payoff is that he gets not a begrudging and useless slave for a while, but a friend and perhaps a brother for life. As Paul says in verse 15, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. So what does Philemon teach us in 2019? Well, I think there's a few things. But before I speak about them, I want to point out some things that we need to be aware of. The first is that slavery is not a thing of the past. 
Slavery is an evil that persists in our world and sometimes right under our very noses. Slavery continues to this day under the new name of human trafficking. According to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, that human trafficking is the recruitment, the transport, the transfer, harbouring or receipt of a person by such means as threat or use of force or other forms of coercion, abduction, fraud or deception for the purpose of exploitation. And throughout the world and in many of our own communities, there are victims of human trafficking. Sometimes they're trapped in domestic servitude or agricultural work or fishing or manufacturing, hotel services, construction, hair and nail salons and prostitution. And of all the sad forms of human trafficking, the worst of the worst are those that enslave children. According to the International Labour Organisation, the worst forms of child labour and trafficking that must be eliminated without delay include the sale of children, debt bondage and serfdom, forced labour, forced recruitment for armed conflict, child pornography, child prostitution and drug trade. As Christians, therefore, we should do whatever we can to eliminate modern day slavery. We should be advocates for a just and fair wage. We should not believe the lie that workers in the pornography and prostitution industry are simply units of labour being paid for a service. They are in fact slaves, if not bound by chains then often by drugs and crippling debt owed to handlers and owners. We should support laws that eliminate exploitation of fellow human beings and particularly the widows, the orphans, the unborn and the elderly. And all of this we should do because we're convinced that every human being from conception onwards is created in God's image and likeness and therefore holds infinite dignity and inestimable worth. But what we can never do is confuse all of this with the Gospel. Fighting for a just cause, no matter how good it is, can at best be the fruit of the Gospel and never a substitute for it. Political and social activism, it might give us a warm inner glow, but it doesn't change people's hearts. It might legislate compliance on the basis of obligation, but it won't produce consent on the basis of love. Only the Gospel can do that. And because the Gospel changes hearts, it also changes relationships. Not only with God and one another, but also with the world. So what does that look like when a Christian is working for non-Christian employers? Well, I should think that if you're an employee receiving a fair wage, then your obligation is to do a fair day's work. Not the minimum to satisfy, but the best you have, according to God's gifting and enabling. For whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Therefore, we give of our best, whether our employer is a Christian or not. 
as Jesus says, when we've done all that our masters have told us, we should say that we're unworthy servants who've only done our duty. And to God we should say, as our prayer book tells us, that we're unworthy through many sins to offer any sacrifice, yet we pray that you'll accept this, the duty and service we owe, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offences. And if we are Christian employers, then no less do we have an obligation to treat our employees fairly and with dignity. Again, it doesn't matter if your employees are Christian or otherwise. And as for Christians working for Christians, there are still baseline obligations that have to be respected. That he or she may be a brother or sister in Christ doesn't give us permission to exploit the relationship. What Christians can expect from one another is a relationship not on the basis of minimum and mutual obligation, but on the basis of love. Not expecting to be served, but to serve. Not demanding obedience, but seeking consent so that favour is spontaneous and not forced. And such should be the nature of every Christian relationship, not just in the workforce, but in the whole of our lives. And that will only happen when, as Christians, we recognise ourselves and one another as partners in faith. That is, as brothers and sisters who work together, having the one hope, the one faith, and the one Lord. And that's what we are as Christians. We're partners in the faith. We work together for the same Lord and the same purpose. Now, of course, it's possible for us to see our faith as something entirely between us and God. And when we're asked to give a reason for the hope that we have, we'll say, well, it's a very private thing and I'd rather keep it to myself. And when that happens, we find ourselves perhaps coming to church regularly. We participate in church prayers diligently. We listen to God's word and read it proclaimed and we ask, well, how's this relevant to me? Very likely, we'll see the Lord's Supper as the high point of our communion with God for the week, a special moment between him and us, a moment of spiritual renewal and grace received. We'll stick around for a cup of tea and catch up on what's been happening. And if we did those things, and we thought those things, we'd be sort of right. But our Christian life would remain stunted and impoverished for lack of food and exercise. We'll lack spiritual food and we'll wither on the vine because we won't read our Bible except on our own sometimes and at church on Sundays. And when we do read it or hear it, we'll understand it very narrowly, if at all, because we think it's about us. And we won't run the race with endurance for lack of exercise. For even though we know love and forgiveness as a concept, we don't have a good understanding of either, because we don't practice either. You see, neither love nor forgiveness is simply a private matter between us and God. Because we can't be the children of God unless we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and we can't receive forgiveness of our sins unless we're actively forgiving one another. And that just doesn't happen when our faith is understood as only between ourselves and God. But when we see one another as partners in faith, then things are different. But we shall grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. We'll be kind and compassionate to one another. We'll forgive each other just as Christ forgave us. We shall encourage one another and build each other up. And we shall find great joy in serving God by serving one another. As Paul prays for Philemon from verse 6, he says, that may our partnership in the faith be effective in deepening our understanding of everything good we share for the sake of Christ. And may we find great joy and encouragement in serving one another. When we have that sort of a relationship with one another, then we shall regard each other not just as fellow human beings, but as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And like Philemon, we should have a love for all the saints, refreshing their hearts in Christ. We should be active in sharing our faith together, doing more for one another than even what is asked. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.